we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. Yeah, the less we eat, the less violence is being done, and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats, and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to Animal Voices, Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM CFRO Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Unceded Coastal Salish Territories. Today is Friday, June 5th, 2020, and I am your host, Grace Wampold, recording and editing this week's show from the safety of my own home. For this week's show, we will be taking a break from the tidal waves of news on land and discussing the vast communities in the deep blue in honor of World Oceans Day, which will take place on Monday, June 8th. The United Nations has dedicated this day to celebrating the role of the oceans in our everyday life and inspiring action to protect the ocean. I am thrilled to be interviewing Kristen Walker, a UBC professor and researcher who specializes in animal welfare and the assessment and mitigation of pain in animals. Not only is she an incredible instructor, she also works closely with veterinarians and researchers to develop humane standards to invasive procedures in wildlife species through measuring wildlife behavior and physiology. Kristen's master's was related to sea otter ecology and behavior. Her PhD was focused on the pain response in sea lions, which we will be discussing further in our interview today. For the news today, I recently found out that in Australia, a place called Tin Can Bay, their local humpback dolphin population has started to leave gifts ashore for humans. These gifts come in the form of bottles, chains, bits of coral, barnacles covered in rocks, and really anything that the dolphins can find from the bottom of the ocean's floor. So these dolphins are used to human contact, and a lot of these articles are saying that they're leaving these gifts because they miss human companionship. But specifically, these dolphins are used to tourists that come and visit the dolphins and pay cafes to then feed these dolphins This relationship has been impacted due to COVID-19 closures of the cafes that offer these services. So several individuals in the local dolphin pod, including 29-year-old Mystique, who has been noted to bring gifts even before the pandemic, is starting to leave these gifts ashore as they no longer have the assurance that tourists will come and bring them food. I found this quite interesting, an example of an artificial interdependence that has been created through the exploitation in some ways of dolphins that is now being spun as a relationship of sorts. Yeah, I find it kind of interesting that a lot of the stories on this seem to be spinning it as um, dolphins missing human companionship when I think it's pretty clear that what they're missing is a bunch of free food that people are are giving them. I think that the only reason that distinction is important is because I think when we sort of tell ourselves this narrative of like, oh, dolphins or whatever animal really likes to be close to us and interacting with us, I think it it makes people more likely to justify 
exploitative practices towards them, you know, like various, for example, uh, aquarium shows and stuff where you interact with dolphins or the swim with dolphins programs and stuff, which are known to be very harmful to these creatures. So I think, yeah, I think it's just really important to be honest with ourselves about what exactly is going on there and not sort of anthropomorphize these animals or assume that we know what they're feeling or thinking. I totally agree. And I also think it's important to note that being able to scavenge for your own food is a learned behavior. And these dolphins have essentially learned to expect food being brought to them from humans, which is a huge shift. They're really smart animals. So the smarter animal would save their energy and just consume the food that's brought to them rather than, you know, bear it in the wild. I think we, we've seen so many examples of non-human animals becoming dependent on humans. You know, that's kind of why, for example, we're often advised not to feed birds because they can sometimes, not saying that dolphins would forget how to find their own food, but it is a thing that has happened with various animals. They kind of like lose their eggs. They get too dependent on humans for sort of that supply. Another interesting thing that I learned about recently was that the Guiana dolphins have electroreception, which they use to sense the electromagnetic charge of other life forms in the ocean. This, for me, shows how all animals will gather information in different ways from us humans, that we are specialized for our environments and our way of living, but that doesn't make anyone's life more valuable. And so, we should be kind to others regardless of our differences in species or behavior. Looting, for instance, is one way that black citizens are able to claim material goods in a country where black people were once not allowed to own property or land. For most of America's history, for example, one of the most righteous anti-white supremacist tactics available would be looting. So when rioters take territory and when they loot, they're revealing precisely how in a space without cops, the idea of ownership is destroyed and dismantled and things can be had for free. So as a program dedicated to kindness and compassion, it is of the utmost importance that we report on the looting, the fires, and the riots that are ongoing in Minneapolis, in D.C., in New York City, in L.A., and other parts of the U.S., as well as the protests that are happening in Canada. Because Americans have a really strong existing bias around violence, around race, around the value of lives of people different from themselves. Uh, protesters that are called thugs or criminals, even when they attempt to demonstrate nonviolently are often suppressed by armed law enforcement. There was a local protest that happened on Sunday at the art gallery here in Vancouver. So, um, you know, these black people being killed by the police is not being murdered or, you know, some people even would call it a lynching is not, is not anything that's new. Um, black, especially black trans women have been murdered by the police like every single month. And there's just no, there's no attention. So we need to be continuously saying these names of these people and knowing their stories, like you said. So I'll just say a few names of people who have been um, murdered by the police in the last month. There's Tony McDade, Nina Pop, Regis Korczynski-Pake, 
Samuel Uko, Dave McAtkey, Brianna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and George Floyd. So I'm sure there are more, and there are other people who have been harmed ba- during the uprisings. Dave McAtkey was one of them. He was um, he was feeding people at the at a protest, and he was shot by police. And it was actually far away from where the protest was happening. It was miles away. When it comes to donating money, that we will put up on our Facebook page a link, a resource that is up to date, because a lot of the different uh, bailout funds have been getting overwhelming support. So they're asking people to contribute funds elsewhere. So we'll just put whatever's up to date and lots of different resources. Let's just remember that this is not something that is unique to the United States. In Toronto, black people are 20 times more likely to be shot by the police than white people. So... We have to be not just brushing it off as a anti-blackness is universal, and we all need to be addressing that in our own communities. As a longtime producer of the show, Elise, I was wondering if you had anything to add um, or say about being a productive activist in our communities. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I think it's important for various movements to stand in solidarity with one another because all forms of oppression are connected um, and they all sort of feed into one another. We've spoken many times on the show about sort of connections between speciesism that is, you know, discriminating against someone on the basis of their species and racism and sort of how those can have historically fed into one another and uh, used against marginalized people and against animals. And so I think that, uh, yeah, it it is very important for us to call this out. Earlier, Leah and I were talking about the myth of a good cop, that there's no such thing as a good cop or just one bad apple, and just as there's no such thing as someone who's humanely slaughtering an animal or humanely murdering someone, because it's just completely inappropriate when we live in a world of overarching white supremacy. We can't argue that it's okay to have, that larger cages are better if you're still in a prison, just as some police are okay sometimes when there's a world of systematic oppression linked to the black community. People are crying for help and saying this is happening to them. All oppression is linked, and so we need to ensure that it's liberation for all people, all communities, regardless of color or creed. There's no good oppression or good oppressor. Yeah, I agree. I just think I agree with you that um, it doesn't matter what any one person's individual experience with a cop might be you know and I I don't want to like draw comparisons and say you know about different play oppression olympics but you know there are people who have they have it's just this the issue of the single story right like you only know it one way you only know this good cop in your small town some people only know this good farmer some people only know this good man like it doesn't matter if you know one good person when the overarching system and the pattern is that it's bad so we just have to continue like standing on the side of the people who are being harmed, right? I think it's worth pointing out too that we um, have many members of our vegan community who are directly affected by this. You know, there are many um, amazing black vegans around the world, around the states who are doing incredible work all the time. And a number of them are on the front lines of these protests and are directly affected by issues of police brutality. And yeah, we definitely all stand with them. Was there, Leah, you mentioned, what was it? This guy had a vegan business and... He's a cousin of Philando Castile and he's like been a, you know, an front lines activist um, in Minneapolis mm-hmm. for many years. And he has a vegan 
restaurant called Trio Plant-Based Food. What is his name, the activist? His name is Louis Hunter. He's the owner of the first black vegan restaurant in Minneapolis. He's on the front lines of the uprisings happening since the, the lynching of George Floyd. If you can contribute anything, we will be um, sharing the GoFundMe ra- uh, fundraiser on our Facebook page. And if you want to look it up, it's called Help Trio, Black-Owned Thrive in Minneapolis. And Trio is the name of his plant-based restaurant. So this person is a wonderful activist for humans and non-humans, and we need to be supporting um, our community during this time. So the pending charges on him... Um, because because of his arrest from being at a protest, caused him to lose his business, his car, and his housing, and now he's trying to rebuild everything. I believe they're also currently feeding people, pro- um, protesters, on the front lines. So definitely a good cause to donate to if you're wanting to support people on the front lines, as we should be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for more resources, we will link a bunch on our page. But I can also say off the top of my head that Black Vision Collective is an amazing group. The Black Food Now Project is also incredible. And Black Women Radicals will link you to different female activists around the globe. And of course, you can check out your Black Lives Matter chapter on information about upcoming protests and ways to get involved. You are listening to Animal Voices on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM CFRO, 100% listener-sponsored radio, broadcasting live from the east side on unceded Coast Salish territories. By your First Nations Health Managers Association, we introduce InfoPoint, a convenient and accessible helpful desk for First Nations Health Managers looking for credible sources of information on COVID-19. Don't have time to dig? Talk to a real person now at 1-855-446-2719 or email infopoint at fnhma.ca. Indigenous Health Today is another resource of information by region at ihtoday.ca. Stay tuned. Coming up is my interview with professor and researcher Kristen Walker. Thanks for listening to Animal Voices. Hi, Kristen. Thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to Animal Voices. Thank you for having me. It's really lovely to hear from you. Um, Kristen Walker is a professor at UBC and I was so lucky to have her as my professor for a course called Compassionate Conservation through the Animal Biology Program. Um, And I guess we can start really at the beginning um, because there are really a lot of different routes to take when it comes to studying animal welfare. And I was curious for you along your degree, um, what kind of guided you to assessing and working towards mitigating pain in wildlife and animals and studying that um, for yourself? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that when I was involved in my master's program, I was doing conservation work related to tracking sea otters along the coast in Washington state. And one of the things that I recognized when I was doing some of that field work was the impact that we were having as researchers on the animals. And I was delving into the literature and trying to understand 
what was known about some of those impacts and was realizing that we didn't know as much um, about that. And so one of the things that I wanted to pursue for um, my PhD and onward was looking at how research in wildlife um, can impact the animals. So in particular, my work studied pain in sea lions. Um, one of the things that they do with wildlife is insert or place tracking devices on the animals. And the work I was doing with the sea otters, they were implanting radio transmitters in the animals. And my big question when they were being released so that we could track them was, how are they moving? How are they feeling after this? What type of responses do they have? Does this device change where they're moving to? Um, are they in pain? And was realizing that that had not been studied um, scientifically. It's not to say that some of the researchers didn't know this and that they weren't treating them from a veterinary perspective, um, but we were missing some of that information in the literature. And so for, for my PhD, that's what I wanted to get into. And so I came up to um, the University of British Columbia to be able to work with the Animal Welfare Program and look at how we can incorporate in um, the individual animal experience with some of the things that are happening in wildlife. So when you got to BC, um, would you say looking through looking at that those individual animals um, and finishing your PhD at that point, was there any um, moment in your study that studies that led you forward saying like, I think I'm really found something here that you're adding to the literature? Oh, for sure. I mean, in, you know, a better understanding. So some of the work that I was doing was the first published responses of sea lions, um, their responses to pain. Um, and, you know, it was a difficult area to go into because the perspective that I have, I was wanting to approach this from how can we mitigate or alleviate pain um, due to some of these procedures or how can we question do we need this procedure anymore so is this something that if we know that it causes the animal pain how can we then um, work towards finding a, a, a different solution for that and so some of the procedures that we were looking at um, were rather invasive um, and I should say that these were all procedures that were already occurring so it wasn't as though I went out and um, did these procedures on the animal it was something that it was already active research going on um, that these animals were already being marked in that particular manner so definitely some of the things that we were working with um, allowed us to have a better understanding of the pain responses. Um, in particular, I was working with sea lions. Um, so some of the procedures that we were looking at were procedures that are commonly done on sea lions in particular. Um, and what we were wanting to be able to do is understand how we can mitigate some of the responses that we're seeing or if a procedure is too invasive um, and the pain cannot be mitigated, how, um, what are some other procedures that can be used instead um, of them using the one particular procedure. And so I think from that, we are able to get an understanding first of what are these animals experiencing? So nobody had looked at the pain responses in marine mammals in a scientific manner. And so one of the things that we are able to do is to go in and say, when sea lions actually um, experience pain and what does that look like based on these particular procedures um, that were happening. And I should say that all of these procedures were already being conducted 
Um, so I was able to piggyback my work on research that is active and going on. Um, so it wasn't as though any additional animals were being um, assessed in this. So this was all active research. And so some of the things that we were able to do out of that was to be able to show the behavioral responses. So I'm big on understanding um, how can we look at an animal and understand some of the emotional experiences that they're having. So we were able to see, um, you know, a shift in how these animals were acting. Um, and that was giving us an indication of, of some of the responses that were happening at that time. And from there, then we were able to work with veterinarians on developing some um, pain mitigation strategies to some of these procedures. Um, some of the other procedures that we were looking at, it just brought forward the question as to should we even be continuing this? And so some of the work that I've done, you know, not only publishing um, in that area and being able to get that out to the scientific literature, but then, you know, just being able to advocate for where where do we how do we approach these these issues how do we bring in the animal um, perspective into this and so yes we can say something for conservation we need to do this type of procedure because we need to understand what's happening with this population but how do we bring into that the the animal's perspective um, and understand what is happening with them um, in this whole experience yeah, so I guess we can even with that go into the concept of compassionate conservation because I feel like there are misconceptions in conservation groups that um, separate compassionate conservation from traditional conservation. And I was wondering if you could explain what compassionate conservation is and why you teach it. Yeah, I mean, compassionate conservation is a relatively new area um, and a relatively new kind of terminology to use, but the, the gist of it is, is that it's encompassing the area of conservation biology, which is focusing on the population level um, with the animal welfare side, which is concerned about the individual animal experience. And so how can we bridge those two areas together to ensure that when we're doing something in a conservation practice, we're really incorporating into that the individual animal. Um, and, you know, it grew out of this bridging of those, those two areas and understanding that some of the things such as what I was talking about for my PhD research, that there was, um, we needed to gain a better understanding and a better grasp to be able to move things forward in a way that, you know, we're dealing with sentient beings and how can we make sure that when we're doing the research that we're, um, or any type of, not even research, but handling of animals, that that is um, taken into consideration. And so this is, this is not something that um, everybody is on board with. Um, there are some discrepancies between this because it is a it's a way of thinking to be able to kind of have a, as we've talked about, is when you were in the class, more of a gold standard. How do we, how can we show that here is ultimately, if we want to consider the animal fully in this, how do we do that, right? And so as we've talked about, you know, some of there's these principles of compassionate conservation, which are really just guidelines to be able to um, question some of the different activities that we do with wildlife, um, you know, and so the first one with do no harm, 
not a lot of, there may be some researchers that don't agree um, with that because they ultimately think harm will happen if we're trying to work with a species that we need to do monitoring on. Some type of harm may come. Um, now that level of harm is where we can kind of talk about some of the questions within there, but it's a gold standard to be able to look at and say, you know, doing no harm to these animals and allowing them to live in their communities, allowing them to live in the family groups, uh, making sure that our, the impact of humans on these animal populations is lessened. Um, and that we are, as we mentioned, you know, we're dealing with sentient beings who are, who live in family groups, who have the ability to feel, um, and all of that needs to be recognized when we're, when we're working within the wildlife area. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, I know that, um, you know, you had some really major findings with your behavioral, in behavioral responses of the cellar sea lions. And was there anything during your time while you were watching other um, conservationists that was surprising to you? And with that, were you surprised by the responses that you got from other researchers at the time? Well, I mean, you're studying, when you start to study pain responses in an animal, you know, there are, it of course was questioned as to, well, how do you know that they're actually experiencing the pain? How can you tell that? And so there's ways to be able to do that. And so without getting into the whole science of that, you know, there are ways that we can we can under, have a better understanding of how these animals um, are experiencing the procedures that are happening to them. Um, and so I would say the thing that was probably more surprising to me was, I mean, there were, there were, of course, you know, the group that I was working with was very open to understanding what we were doing um, and how they can help. They wanted to be able to ensure that, you know, I mean, we were working with an endangered species. They, they ultimately wanted them to survive. How we get to that and, you know, the, the end of having that animal survive, you know, other, some people use more of a utilitarian approach and they think that these animals are going to, you know, we have to use a few or a few may suffer to be able to gain a better understanding of the entire population. Um, but is that necessary? And so, I, you know, I wouldn't say there was anything surprising in that, you know, I mean, within the conservation field, you're going to have a whole, just within any field, you're going to have a whole array of different approaches that people are going to take to this. Um, and it's trying to, I think, bring to the table a little bit more, you know, often people, um, they don't think about the, the animal's perspective as much. They don't think about it from if I were that animal, how would I be experiencing this? Um, and I think that's a little bit what compassionate conservation is doing is bringing that to the, you know, the forefront more of how is the animal experiencing this? And how can we make sure that um, we're doing least amount of harm as possible? There's something that I think I remember you saying in class and definitely correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but that, um, mm -hmm. you know, pain is something you experience and it is an emotional state and that we need to be focusing on the emotional states of animals. And that is a big part of it with wildlife and with how we see conservation. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Pain is definitely an emotional state. It is a, you know, it, it's not a, there's a physiological response of pain, but that is the, that's how you, all of the, the nerves are firing. That's the physiological component. But once we get up to the brain, that's when it is considered pain. And so there's a processing of that. And it's not to say that, all animals, including humans, humans don't even process pain at the same 
level, right? We all have different thresholds of it, but we need to understand that animals are capable of feeling pain. We've seen that in so many different species. We're not just talking about sea lions here, you know, or mammals in general, right? I mean, there are non-mammalian species that we know can experience pain. And when I think we recognize that within the area of wildlife, then how does that change our our view of these animals, right? I mean, they're from a young age, children are taught to, in some sense, not taught in the classroom, but in a social um, realm to disregard some of these experiences of these animals, you know, look at insects, right? And there are certain insects we know that can, um, can feel pain. And again, may not be in the same way as mammals, but we need to have a, a deeper respect for sentient beings. Yeah, I really love that. And, you know, it's interesting because I realized after having taken your class, I, I thought I was ignorant for not knowing that animals are given numbers to be tracked, sometimes branded, sometimes tagged, sometimes tracking devices put into them. And do you think that maybe a part of the issue in people understanding conservation and being more considerate to the emotional states of animals is public awareness? Can you clarify what you mean by that? Are you, are you asking if the the public don't know as much and therefore this is the way that we've been doing it? Or Yeah. Do you think that it's an idea of an ignorance on the side of the public? or? Well, I mean, I, I would say that you can think about that not just with wildlife, but in any area. There's always going to be, and I don't know if I would say an ignorance to it, but just a lack of... Um, understanding of what truly does happen, right? I mean, we see this when there are different things within production animal systems that all of a sudden get exposed and people learn of this. And then there becomes this shift because there's this pressure from the public that is placed on these organizations or a demand to say, I want, you know, free range now. And there is this, you know, you, you drive up a demand. Well, we don't have that as much within wildlife because they're not as much. I mean, there's certain things that are kind of consumable products within wildlife. But what I'm referring to is even just the protection of, um, you know, wild animals in general. Yes, I don't think the public does know all the things that happen within conservation research. But there's also when conservation research happens, you know, it is done in a manner that is trying to understand what is happening with these populations of animals. Vancouver Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM, Radio with Roots. You are listening to Animal Voices on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM CFRO. 100% listener-sponsored radio broadcasting live from the east side on unceded Coast Salish territories. We've seen, seen a shift where there are now more researchers coming in saying, no, we can use non-invasive methods. We can use these things to monitor animals. Yes, it does come with the downsides um, of, you know, maybe you're not able to learn as much about the animal as you can if you had a particular device on an animal. Um, But with that, you know, I think those types of effects hadn't been studied for a long time, right? When this new technology came out to say, oh, we can actually implant an animal, or we can put a tag on an animal and learn all this cool information, they started doing that without understanding the effects of these devices on the animal. 
And so once we started to get literature to say, hey, or researchers to question and say, hey, you know, I think these devices may be causing a change in, you know, swimming pattern or a change in the way that the animal's interacting with others, then um, once we can, can gain a better understanding of that, then that also can help drive um, some of the changes within the policy, um, as well as the public. But I would say, you know, the, the thing on the public side is they may not be as informed as to all of the nuances that happen within um, the conservation world. But it can help. Yeah, there's definitely like a balance there too, where mm -hmm. it is important to track these populations or understand where they're moving, right? But also understand how tracking them impacts their behavior. With that, do you think mm -hmm. that there are any like misconceptions as to what conservation really is, separating compassionate conservation from traditional conservation, that we're looking into protecting populations and thinking about them on an individual level versus as of species? Do you think that this is something that is getting more, is kind of getting more popular overall in the conservation field? popular but I think there's a different way and again I think this is a shift in just the different type of um, researchers and different you know generational shift coming in that is saying that no we we can do things differently and we're able to gain a better understanding and just our when we have a better understanding of these animals um, fundamentally we can then make different type of recommendations for things that we're doing so understanding that these animals um, are sentient beings and that they live in certain type of family groups. And by disrupting these different types of things, there's this whole cascade of interactions, then it allows different ways to be able to um, interact with the animals or from a, you know, a, if you're dealing with wildlife management, manage these animals um, in the sense that at a population level, I don't like to use the word manage, but in, in the sense of, you know, I mean, when we are, right, if, if you're dealing with conservation groups and you're looking at it um it but i don't think there's any big misconceptions by the public um again it's more of a um how do we how do we move forward a little bit more with having a better understanding um and a better recognition that these are sentient beings and um that they kind of deserve a a level of respect right have you um, heard recently about some of the scourging on the Salish Sea? Uh, some people have been blaming sea lions for a decline in salmon, and therefore there's been more culling of sea lions recently. I just wanted to know if you had any opinions on that or if you'd see anything about that. For sure, I have opinions on that. <laughs> Yeah, we don't have enough information. And so this is, so one of the things within this, and I mean, what I would suggest is even, you know, the the group at UBC, the Marine Mammal Group, um, Andrew Trites, I was just reading a, um, a, a piece by him just the other day um, and his comments on this. And we don't have a good enough understanding of what's happening with these, the pinniped populations. And so the seals and sea lions that are being targeted. Um, and you know, simply by saying, oh, well, we need to go in and, you know, those ecosystems are incredibly complex. There are things we do not understand. So it's not as simple as saying, well, we need to remove the sea lions or the seals, and then we're going to have these, you know, healthy fish populations. 
A, whose fish is it anyway? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, it's, you don't know then what are the effects then of removing all those pinniped populations, right? You remove all these pinnipeds and then what happens? Um, you know, there are certain whale populations that are going to be relying, like it, it is incredibly complex. And for any group to come out and say that um, this is the direct cause, you know, marine mammal researchers have been, and marine researchers have been working on this for a long time, and they don't even have solid answers. So we do not have the data behind us to be able to, um, to say with confidence that this is, this is a solution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, transient killer whales, for instance, will eat um, seals and you're impacting the entire food chain. And culling is never is never a solution. In my mind, culling is not a solution because you're going to be introducing other variables that we do not understand um, at that point. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Why does this language, especially like in relation to compassion or the word sentience, why does that matter to you on an individual level? Um, well, because, you know, again, it goes back to these animals being able to have complex emotional lives. And to me, that matters because, you know, I want to be able to, you know, teach my daughter and other, you know, generations coming up that we need to have respect for wildlife, right? And that they are living complex lives, um, emotional lives, and that we need to understand that and respect that overall to reduce animal suffering um in in every way that is a huge you know kind of goal of mine is to to help in that reducing of suffering it's it's interesting i think a lot of us need to take some do some critical thought on where that gap is that's led to the call beginning the news broadcasting is saying that actually we don't have the information so why are we doing this and i find that mm -hmm. intriguing in and of itself that people working in animal welfare and working actually in conservation are saying, wait, why is this happening? That I haven't read anywhere saying that, oh yeah, this is definitely what we should be doing right now in order to maintain the salmon populations. Yeah, and you know, I mean, the, one thing also to kind of add into that is we can't just take all of our information from the media, right? And so, uh, because not to say that it's all, <laughs> that it's misleading, but there are things that, um, are going to be sensationalized, right? And so we have to be to be cautious when we're we're reading something and we're learning about something to go to other sources to see what some of the experts in the field say on that, um, and to get more information um, on the particular topic. You know, one of the things we're also going to be starting at UBC is a um, one of the another courses that I'm going to be teaching is related to human wildlife conflict. Um, and so what we're doing is to be able to give the students some um, hands-on experiences with community partners um, working on issues related to human wildlife conflict and to, for them to be able to then think critically about, okay, we have a conflict um, that's occurring within humans and whatever um, species we're dealing with and how can they then um, come up with solutions um, or recommendations for those community partners or for um, people in the field to be able to um, help mitigate some of those conflicts. And so, you know, having more opportunities, I think, for students even um, to be able to kind of get involved in some of this type of, of work um, is great.
yeah, so I guess to wrap up, is there anything else that you're excited for and other courses that you're going to be teaching in the fall? Yeah, I mean, we, we have the compassionate conservation class. Of course, it's going to look a little bit different because, you know, UBC is going to be all online for the fall, as you know. Um, but we're still going to have some of the same great experiences in there and be able to, you know, have guest speakers and be able to hear from from different people kind of in the area of compassionate conservation. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we always have... I'm always trying to get involved in, in different things related to human wildlife conflict more now and being able to incorporate in um, ways to bring the the animal um, as a stakeholder and kind of their their voice forward more um, in these issues. Um, and so, to be honest, those types of things, I don't necessarily seek them out. Um, they come up and it's something that we end up working with. Um, but... Yeah, and we're always looking for um, you know students to be involved in those types of projects as well. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm yeah. gonna look into that class. Please send me the course code. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's very exciting. Yeah, I have to say, as uh, having taken your class and in and interacting with you, it's very clear that these things do find you. <laughs> You're a very impressive woman. I have to say. <laughs> I would say people should look at look for your publications because you've written about not only behavioral responses but about how to move forward once we've seen this information and it's comprehensive and important research that you've done. So yeah, thank you so much for talking to me and being on Animal Voices. Thank you. I appreciate that. Hi, you've been listening to Animal Voices Radio. We just concluded an interview with Kristen Walker a UBC professor and a proponent of compassionate conservation. Thank you for spending this time with us as we honor World Oceans Day. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues to spread, it is important to stay safe. Coronavirus is now in Canadian provinces and territories. By law, if you've traveled abroad recently, you must self-isolate. To do your part, stay home as much as possible and practice social distancing. Try to maintain at least two meters away from others. Encourage those who are sick or showing symptoms to self-isolate or to seek medical attention. As always, wash your hands frequently, avoid touching your face, and practice good respiratory etiquette by covering your coughs and sneezes. Clean regularly used surfaces. COVID-19 symptoms can mimic colds and flu and include fever, cough, and difficulty breathing. Infected individuals may also have mild symptoms or none at all. For up-to-date information, check reliable sources like your local health authority or the Public Health Agency of Canada. Now I will be sharing the audio from a trailer for a new documentary called The Walrus and the Whistleblower about an activist named Phil Demers, who has been on the show before speaking about the lawsuit, which this film highlights. You can check out that episode if you look through our previous podcasts. The documentary was filmed by filmmaker Natalie Bibio. The documentary highlights an iconic amusement park outside of Niagara Falls, near where Phil Demers was living. So the story unfolds as Demers works towards trying to free Smooshie from this aquatic center. Take a listen, and I highly suggest seeing this documentary. You can access this documentary from the CBC and their documentary channel. 
It's a match made in Marineland. The first time she set eyes on him, she was absolutely smitten. It's certainly not your typical love story. You were a trainer at one time at Marineland. Smooshy is a walrus who lives at Niagara Falls, Marineland. The only way really to do a story like Marineland is to have an insider. That was Phil Demers, the first whistleblower. Over the course of my tenure at Marineland, I was witness to things that people would never imagine. In response, Marineland's head veterinarian gave Global News a tour of their facilities, insisting the animals there are well taken care of. I mean, you could talk about we take good care of our animals all you want. Obviously, something's terribly wrong. That was the choice. Walk away, move on, get a job doing whatever, and look the other way, or save Smooshy. For a while, Marineland's owner sought to intimidate us by driving by our house and stalking us. John Haller founded Marineland in 1961. It's a hobby. It's a hobby. <laughs> he felt a bit fatherly. And so we had some really powerful interactions. I don't remember myself without him. His stubbornness is only matched by the stubbornness of one individual. Me. They sued me for a million five. They sued my girlfriend. They sued other activists. They sued newspapers. They, they're suing everybody. I think it's very hard to go up against the Goliath. Feels an average person fighting a huge conglomerate. I hate to see somebody ruined over their beliefs. They lost control of the narrative. You, sir, admitted under oath to personally consuming controlled drugs meant for marine mammals. If I can get Smooshy's story out, they have to take care of her. They have to provide for her better care. Police got a call from uh, Marineland uh, expressing some concern. Marineland created me. I am not me. I am the creation that Marineland, they themselves, hoped to never create. I am their worst nightmare. The, the picture's revealing itself here, and it's exactly my worst nightmare. A conclusion. It is my nightmare. Who am I going to be without a fight? Taken for granted by 
urgent news update. A stray dog was sighted on June 2nd near McKee Road and Whatcom Road in Abbotsford. They were trying to drink from a puddle when a witness noticed that the dog's mouth was taped shut with electrical tape, which was old and matted into the dog's longer fur. The dog may be a shepherd. They are very skittish with black fur, a white chest, and white paws. They are medium in size and wearing a chain collar around their neck. A local activist contacted the SPCA and Pet Searchers Canada, who have been given all necessary info, including the last sightings of the dog. In order to help out in the search and rescue, Pet Searchers request that people stay off the Discovery Trail, as there are many people searching in this area for the dog. We ask that people refrain from joining the search or posting about the dog on social media to avoid scaring the dog into hiding as they are scared of humans and may retreat into Sumas Mountain area, which is a remote area with cougars, bears, and bobcats. If anyone has updated info on sightings or anything else, please call 778-928-1978. SPCA Fled Rome, Abbotsford Police, and Pet Searchers are all aware of most recent updates and don't need to be called. Again, just contact 778-928-1978. Thank you so much, Riley, for sending that update. 2020 World Oceans Day is growing the global movement to call on world leaders to protect 30% of our blue planet by 2030. This critical need is called 30 by 30. By safeguarding at least 30% of our ocean through a network of highly protected areas, we can help ensure a healthy home for all. Help out our sea friends using hashtag World Oceans Day to grow the movement and protect our blue planet. You can also check out the hashtag protect our home because it isn't just us on land that are losing our homes due to climate change. June 8th is World Oceans Day. So check out worldoceansday.org to figure out ways that you can plan a celebration, sign the petition, and get involved. Fun science fact. Many fish can actually change their biological sex during the course of their lives. I like this because it highlights the importance of gender fluidity and the prevalence of gender fluidity in the animal world. Some deep sea fish are born with what we would consider to be both male and female sex organs. But what really is gender? What does genitalia have to do with it? Food for thought. All right, that concludes this week's show. I just want to remind everyone to celebrate World Oceans Day and consider how you can support ocean sustainability through your daily habits and choosing to live a compassionate lifestyle through veganism. The best way to save our marine friends is not to eat them. I also want to thank Kristen Walker once again for joining us and spending the time to talk with me about her work in compassionate conservation. You've been listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM, Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, unceded Coastal Salish Territories. Tune in next Friday for another hour of Animal Voices, hosted by Elise. I also wanted to take this time to do a short plug for a documentary called The Walrus and the Whistleblower, 
just released last week. It's really interesting and check it out. We here at Animal Voices want to connect with you online. Visit our website, animalvoices.org, where you can stream past shows and download them as podcasts. Or you can stream previous episodes through Apple Podcast or Google Play. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and Instagram at Animal Voices Vancouver or on Twitter at Animal Voices capital YVR. Now I'll be leaving you with some sounds from Vancouver recorded on April 9th at 7.01 after I began quarantine in a new home. After that, I will play the new Orville Peck song, No Glory in the West. Listen and download No Glory in the West by Orville Peck and check out other songs from Show Pony on Orville Peck's website. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. And thanks for listening to Animal Voices today. Remember, be kind to all animals. They say Paris is dead Lived through London and drank through Memphis The things you live by were once just a guess And there ain't no glory in the West No, there ain't no glory Hard to think on your feet Tired of begging them just to compete Shoot to win can feel so bittersweet But you take what you can get Cause there ain't no glory Blazing on ahead, burning through it, coming down the bend. Nowhere left to go, going's all we know. Mm-hmm.
Riding past the best And there's still no it off his chest Cause there ain't no glory in the West Burning on the head Blazing through it Running blind again Nowhere left to go Going's all we know Riding past the best And there's still no rest And there's still no rest And there's still no rest There ain't no glory in the West Your blessings, they'll say And after each midnight begins a new day But don't place your bets on a word that they say They'll put your life to rest Cause there ain't no glory in the West No, there ain't no glory in the West There ain't no glory 